spread the fire. Welcome back to SMWX. And today I have a great treat for you again. We have one of the country's finest political analysts, mighty Jamie. You know, earlier this year, just before the president's State of the Nation address, we had a great conversation, which is linked down below. Check it out. Previewing the State of the Nation address. And uh, who would have thought we would see all that we've seen this year? But what we want to do is follow up on some of the president's promises because it's all well and good to keep making these declarations and these promises but it seems like very few in the south african media are prepared to follow up and actually hold people in power accountable sometimes i feel like uh there are opposition parties all of them held more accountable than than the president so we want to go back, look at the State of the Nation address and do a scorecard for President Ramaphosa. And there's no one better to do it than Mighty Jamie. So, bro, thanks so much for coming on SMWX. Uh, second time. We're making quite a habit of this and I'm glad about it. Well, thank you for having me and um, good evening, afternoon or night to, <laughs> to, to the... To the Actually, good morning as well, because you never know <laughs> when everyone watches a YouTube video or listens to a podcast. No, great to, great to have you. And look, President Ramaphosa's State of the Nation address took place in February. There were some disruptions, but the speech had a number of important themes and there were a number of important promises that were made. So we want to look back at those. And I think the first thing that I would look at is the president made a lot of promises on state-owned enterprises. Uh, he spent a lot of time in his speech talking about load shedding, what a problem it was, that things were going to turn around, even though it was a difficult moment and, and we could expect load shedding for some time to come. Spoke about SAA. Um, where do you think he stands on, on that promise? Well, I don't think he stands in a good position, to be quite honest with you, because if we consider the the main focus SOEs, which are ESCOM and, and SAA, I don't think many people can say that they are satisfied with how they have been handled throughout the year. I think we saw power outages at some critical po points in the year. Wet coal seems to be a problem still to this day, uh, we've seen that the financial oversight of ESCOM has not been great. But also, we've also seen some hypocritical narratives that have started to emerge because I think critical individuals within ESCOM have been implicated in some kinds of shady practices and they have kept, uh, you know, exonerating each other internally to say, well, when I picked, when I handpicked a tender, you know, for one particular thing, this is the CEO, that was fine, don't worry, because I know these people, they're good. And then later on, we had another ESCOM official who had been involved in you know, nepotism and getting his relative hired and other practices which are really irregular, then being you know, exonerated by internal investigations in a manner that was not consistent with how we would have handled it under different administration. So for me, if a principle is a principle, that principle must be upheld across the board. If exercise is good, it's good for me, it's good for you, it's good for everybody. Right? But if we start having a situation where the principles are pliable based on who's in the seat, then all of a sudden we can no longer look at things objectively. I think the man said, tell no lies, claim no easy victories. And that's always our obligation when we have these kind of conversations. So I think Assessing the president's performance overall um, has to be done in the context of this global pandemic. You know, when we started off, we had the situation where we were not anticipating that we would be going into eight months now of um, a national state of emergency disaster and all of the things that have happened in, in this year. But having said that, some of the criticisms I think that we raised at the beginning still apply. We've had a presentation of an economic recovery plan. And that economic recovery plan suffers from the very same problems that the SONA did and that the goals are not specific. You know, smart goals are the standard in terms of management. They need to be specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-based. And we continue to hear these um, ideals around the jobs that we're going to get and job opportunities, which is another conversation by itself. But they were never placed in a measurable time frame and with the metrics we're in, you can measure. You know, 
if someone is really committed to something, what they will do is they'll give you a time, they'll give you a deadline, they'll give you a metric, and they'll say to you, here's how you measure things. One thing I love about the COVID-19 tracker is that it showed what's possible and what level of detail a government can provide information, which also showed me that oftentimes governments are hiding information to cover up their underperformance so that they can come and give very vague speeches. I mean, we just recently had an announcement that there's gonna be another investment summit. And I was thinking to myself, I still don't know what happened to the money that was pledged in the first investment summit. <laughs> I still don't know what happened to the money from Global Citizen that was pledged on stage. And what is the health and state of those projects? You know, one of the things that I think we all need to start doing is to start using the language of management in assessing the politician's rhetoric. Because in a project, we need to know what is the scope of the project? What is the budget of the project? Who is the project manager? Uh, when does it start? When does it stop? What are the critical timeframes? What are the key performance indicators? And how do we know that things have been used? A lot of times this language is just, is pepper sprayed onto documents by politicians, but not with the intent of delivery. And I think that's something that we have to be critical of. You know, um, Former President Tabumbege used to say that he always used to call the NDP a vision and not a plan. And people didn't like him for saying that. And to, 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 to resuscitate his argument in this context, what he was saying is that there's, there's no plan here because I need to see the metrics of a plan. So when people ask me, why isn't the NDP being delivered? This is Mbege speaking. I say, how can it be delivered? It's just a vision. If you want a delivery, you should be asking for the real plan. And I think the sleight of hand that was performed in that document is that it was called a plan. And many people treat it like a plan as opposed to an analytical document and a vision document, mm. but not specifically a project management document. But in contrast, when the Chinese make a plan, they actually mean what the plan is. So if you look at the Belt and Road Initiative, if they say, guys, we're going to expand our control of the supply chain all the way around the world, everyone knows that in a year, I'll see progress. In another year, I'll see the, and I will know exactly where the progress will be. They will have five ports where they had mm -hmm. none before. Mm -hmm. They will have yeah, five yeah. roads where they had none before. And they'll even be able to explain to you in kilometers, you know, and now they've got this plan where they plan to be tech independent by 2025. And the Americans panicked because they knew that this is going to be a real thing. The Chinese mean it and they're gonna pursue it and they're not playing games. Now contrast that with any African document, which is called a plan, right? All of the African documents have this planning framework where it's 2063, it's 2030. Remember when this started, it was early 2010s that this thing was coming out. And if you measure the metrics, you then begin to say, man, we're, we're, we're like 11 years from 2010 now, or like, I mean, 10 years, but we're getting into the 11th year. And none of the key metrics have been delivered upon, right? And now what is going to happen is that there's going to be a, what, a 2040 NDP, and then a 2050 NDP. And people are going to walk around saying, we have a plan. Uh, our plan is brilliant. But these are not plans in the sense of an Elizabeth Warren plan or the Chinese government plan. And we need to start inserting into our own e examination of these plans, the key metrics we need to understand. Because when you measure LeBron James, you know what you're measuring. How many free throws did you score? You, uh, like how many three pointers? Yeah. How many yeah. points? How many rebounds? How many assists? When you measure a political plan, you need to know all of the metrics that matter so that yeah. they can stop playing around. Otherwise they'll come and say, yeah, I gave you job opportunities. And then they'll come and say job opportunities were created later. And every civilian is like, but we didn't see any jobs. Yeah, look, I think that's right. And I think that the SONA suffered from this vague inability to really articulate in a coherent way um, where the nation is headed. And for some reason, the president keeps getting the benefit of the doubt because he makes these vague promises um, and people continue to believe them. And I think that is a problem of this administration. Um, and so let's look at some other specific things that were said in the speech. Um, 
And of course, we are going to come back, as you said, to COVID-19, uh, COVID-19 because we need to put yeah. some of these failures within the context of this crisis. In context, yeah. Yeah, but let, let, me, let me come to one thing that, that he said, and this is about service delivery, right? And notice, I'm going on the economy service delivery because all these other cosmetic things are great, but if the economy is failing and service delivery is failing... Those are the bottom lines, are, yeah. Where are we? Yeah, exactly. So... He said, quote, by working with the Auditor General to reduce irregular expenditure by shifting government spending from consumption expenditure to investment in infrastructure, we aim to improve the state of public finances. Now, in July this year, the Auditor General comes out with a damning report, devastating, showing that, you know, only 21 municipalities receive clean audits, more than a billion spent on consultants, 32 billion in irregular expenditure. So it does seem to me that the promises on service delivery have 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 just failed and 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 we haven't seen you know this great shift in financial management or basic services being delivered to people well, and that's absolutely right i mean the auditor general report is uh, a repeat movie it's like those movies that you see on on e <laughs> yeah. you remember when they used to say coming <laughs> this this friday on e don't miss it you know, and, and, and irregular expenditure, irregular <laughs> expenditure coming soon on E corruption. <laughs> what you're like, oh my god, how many mm. times have, it, it's gripping, you know? But like, we know this plot right now. I think right now, the surprise would have been if the auditor general had just come and said, I'm amazed, everyone has a clean audit, everyone mm. did the right thing. And I think we have to uh, ask for less budget because we have to fire some people. Uh, everyone is, that, that would be a miraculous uh, turn of events, but it's one that we're not going to see. And part of the reason is because the, 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 the entrenchment of the looting machinery is quite vast. And what politicians mm -hmm. do is that they speak about it, but they don't actually examine and deal with the drivers at the municipal level and at every other level. And there's sure. been a commitment that there'll be transparency around tenders, there'll be transparency around who was allocated and all of this stuff. Mm. And we've started to see some of that, but we haven't seen nearly enough. Because if you're mm. watching the State Capture Commission, if you're following all of the COVID arrests, you come to find that there has been a lot that people have been doing. Because I was actually pulling up a document um, from, from, from the midterm... Um, uh, budget speech. And when I looked mm. at the 500 billion, right, just, and, and, and I want to use it as an example. So when we look at the 500 billion that was now being used and the explanation were being given, they say 30 billion is allocated to health and frontline services. In a pandemic, you would think that of a 500 billion allocation, more would go to health actually, because it's a pandemic, right? The pandemic is causing the disruption in economic activity. So anything that helps you manage the pandemic should get the lion's share of the money. So already there, there's a bit of a question mark, right? Just analytically to say, wait a minute, if we've got a burst pipe, you know what I mean? Most of the money has to go to the burst pipe and not like to uh, the food program for the home while the mm -hmm. burst pipe is disrupting every activity. But anyway, that's a story for another day. But when you think about it, in that 30 billion, what did we learn around the way that money was allocated? I mean, as a percentage, how much actually got to the procurement of the thing? Because someone is taking a 50 cent uh, face mask, charging two rands for that same face mask, selling 2000 of those things and pocketing the difference, right? So you could have gotten four times more face masks, but now because of the rampant uh, fraud that was happening, a lot of those uh, items were being delivered, not at closest to cost, but at exorbitant cost because the government is working through middlemen. And that shows you sometimes the harm mm -hmm. that exists with just saying, let's privatize everything. You know, uh, what's the solution to this? No, let's privatize and then we'll do a tender. And then, because now you're introducing an element which can be gamed for nefarious reasons. So mm -hmm. of this 30 billion, possibly 10, went to the things because at some point the face masks not even the face masks those th the, those thermometer guns they were going for like 500 rand on the market 
but the government was paying well over 1,000 rands for those particular uh, thermometer guns for schools, et cetera, et cetera. So how much of the money is going to the specific thing? Hand sanitizer, it's a joke. Hand sanitizer is one of the cheapest things, but it was being sold at exorbitant prices to the state. It's stuff that you can literally make in any chemistry lab and any uh, factory that is involved in, 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 in um, chemical production, hair food, whatever the case may be. They could have repurposed for that easily. But even as they did, we saw that there was a lot of um, gatekeeping where you had to mm. go find the right cater to get the allocation. And that's why we saw some prominent names starting to get implicated, the Kusela Tikos and all of the other names that actually were implicated in this. But that already is a, a, a red line for me where I'm like, I can already see that this money is not going where it's supposed to go. If you look at the support for vulnerable houses where they allocated 50 billion, right? We saw what happened with the food parcels. Right. People were buying food parcels for 200 rands and then uh, charging 1,000 rands for those food parcels. Right? There were people who were doing uh, community work right, under the guise of COVID-19, where the only thing they go and do is they get an invoice book from Pick and Pay. They write community work uh, on COVID education, 1.1 million. And nobody asks any questions and they clear that invoice. Now, what has this all got to do with the original discussion? If you are serious about fighting, you know, the massive irregular expenditure, the massive uh, wastage of, of state resources, you have to do more than signal that you are going to do so. You have to create streamlined processes of approving uh, the use of state funding, which killed us. But now if you start doing that, you may get too close to too many people, even in your own inner circle, who mm. may not appreciate mm what is being done. And that's the elephant in the room, is that if your organization that you lead is heavily involved in irregular activities and understands what the game is, unless you robustly deal with the, the drivers of those activities and the key elements of that kind of activity, that activity is not gonna stop no matter what your speech says. You know, and a few arrests are not necessarily going to curtail that. And uh, well, some, some can, of these people have been lazy, can I come on? been sophisticated. Can I come on to that? Because I think, well, you raise many interesting points there, but I want to take you up on one of them, which is that some would say, look, uh, okay, fine. COVID has derailed the economy. A service delivery is always going to take a long time. But the green shoots are beginning to be seen with this question of corruption. We've seen a number of arrests. We've seen uh, tough talk. And yes, it took a long time, but the president... Uh, has finally seen his agenda uh, reach fruition and this corruption is really being dealt with now. What, what would you say to that, uh, that view? Well, the optimistic side of me would say this is an amazing turn of events and we now have uh, uh, an administration that is serious about corruption. I think the one thing I must give the president credit for is to try to at least live up to the ideal excuse me, in his administration. So if you look at the Masugus, if you look at the Dikos, the way that he dealt with everyone who was breaking rules around in Stellan Debeni Abrahams, he was actually trying to set a tone to say, listen, guys, we cannot be preaching one particular thing whilst this kind of activity is going on, even in my own faction of the ANC, you know? So to maintain the moral high ground, I think we have to give him credit that he tried to do as best as he could within the circles that he was most closely associated with. Moving beyond his circle of association, I think there's also been an effort, right, to try to say the ANC Integrity Committee is taking this more seriously, um, and also people must step aside, quote-unquote, uh, if they are charged, implicated, and there's been an enforcement of that to a large extent. I think those things are commendable, and they do send a signal, and maybe that signal is uh, at a very optimistic level one that will curtail this kind of behavior. The pessimist in me, you know, the donkey in an animal farm, which says, ah, you know, remember they always, they always used to ask donkey, they say, hey, donkey, what does this mean? And donkey would be like, I've been alive for a long time, man. <laughs> and that's all he would say the whole time. They'll be like, donkey, can you please guide us? And part of me is thinking that 
the list of arrests is very short when we think about the extent of the COVID-19 corruption that occurred in this year. I would have expected 1,000 names. Let alone the other corruption mm -hmm. before it. So no, not even looking at the other, just to say 1,000 arrests in respect to COVID-19, because it's been all over the place. You know, you saw people inflating the price of the Jojo tanks, even after, you know, Rand Water had put the prices online. Some people will say, well, this Jojo tank now costs 30,000 when the price was 14,000. And you're like, how did it get cost? What could you have done in between getting it from where the Jojo tanks are sold to getting it to KZN that added double the price? Surely it can't be transportation that costs double, you know? People are trying to profit from service delivery to the state in a time of crisis. And it's a form of price gouging that has not been properly examined. But the skeptic in me, the pessimist in me, feels that some of this was to uh, allay the public frustration, which was growing, because we've seen that in a time of crisis, in a time of pandemic, the politics can shift very fast. It's not a very stable ground. And the people are not necessarily willing to go back inside once they're outside. We saw what happened in Belarus with the protests. We saw what was happening uh, in Mali with the protests. And we've seen in general, even with the Black Lives Matter movement, that once the people decide we're out here to get them back inside and in the sounds... middle of a pandemic where they're unemployed, it's, it's not necessarily a win-win. So part of this has been to mm. almost manage the frustration of the public, I feel. And part of it also has been to provide the public with an outlet. I often worry that we watch the movie of the arrest, these Hollywood style arrests, and then we don't pay close attention to some of the boring, but more important, more impactful stuff. You know, mm -hmm. it's almost like uh, if you have a, a cut above your eye, right? Maybe, and it's bleeding all over your face. That's very dramatic to watch. But in terms of uh, the long-term impact on your health, that's not very dramatic. And doctors will just say, well, we'll stitch it up, nothing to worry about. But a cancer that is in stage two, if you get that kind of a result, it's slow and it doesn't feel the same. And it's not as riveting to observe, but its impact on your body is more lasting. So that takes me to a, a part of the conversation I wanted to go to, which is this core question around how do you fund crisis? Because I think that's something that has had an impact on the economy and the sustainability of the economy. So there are two schools of thought. One school of thought is you have to borrow the money, right? The other school of thought is it's too much money to borrow. So you have to rely on your reserve bank and you have to rely on your monetary policy. What does this mean? You reduce the, in the interest rates to basically zero and you also put an injection of funds into the economy what is known as quantitative easing it's not technically the printing of money because you don't always have to print to increase liquidity in the system it can be digital money so to speak because a lot of money nowadays is exchanged in the digital sphere as opposed to the physical sphere but there's need to fund projects and to fund the interests of uh, the people during a crisis. A crisis is like a time of war. It doesn't always have to be a war, but you cannot use normal monetary theory in a time of crisis and expect normal results because the factor of the crisis uh, puts a weight on all of that. So now, what, what we chose to do was to borrow the money, right? But that also limits how much you can do with the money. Because if you recall, there was a need now to provide people who are out of work with money, right? There's a need to secure the incomes of those who lost those incomes. There's a need also to try to sustain those who can no longer even benefit from the largesse of the middle class and those who are donating to them. All of these things require a lot of money to run. So what does Canada do? They say, stimulus bill, quantitative easing, let's go. What does America do? They say, stimulus bill, Quantitative easing, let's go. What does the United Kingdom do? Same thing. And they are able to provide some form of basic income to their people during the duration of the pandemic. They're able to provide businesses with lifelines to keep them intact so that after the pandemic, those businesses are no longer, uh, you know, 
they're not defunct after the pandemic. We try to do versions of that because obviously we look at the world and we always have this aspiration of trying to match. We say, okay, that's what you did. We'll try match it, but African style. That's what you did. We'll try match it African style. But if you think about it, because we borrowed the money, there's always going to be a limit as to how much of that we can do over and above the fact that a lot of the money is leaking, right? Over and above the fact that the systems to distribute that particular money is not, they're not robust. I mean, what did we even hear in the last week? We heard that the temporary employment relief scheme is coming to an end and the labor unions and many of the businesses only found out on the Friday uh, at Nedlec that it was going to happen, you know? And they were like, hang on, wait a minute. The reason why this thing exists is to prevent us from doing mass retrenchments. And if now we're not going to be getting this temporary employment relief, we are going to have to do mass retrenchments. And that is going to create more unemployment and more burden for the state in a time of crisis. And they even said, hey, we have as, as employers and workers been contributing to the UIF. It has 50 billion in excess funding, but um, or in, in, in liquidity. And that liquidity should be used now you save for a rainy day so that on the day that it rains, you can spend the money that you've been saving for a rainy day. And so what they were saying is, this is the rainy day. This is the rainy moment. And, you know, everyone was saying, the, the UIF um, conservatives were saying, yeah, but we need this money for later. You know, we need this, we need to keep this just in case something happens later. And everyone else is like, hang on, something has happened. It's called COVID-19. It's called the national state of disaster. That's the thing. That's the thing you have to roll out your social support for the workers for. But all of this goes back to that question around if you have a stimulus mindset, you are going to uh, view the crisis in an approach which says, let us adopt this more progressive monetary policy and actually not be worried about inflation targeting, not be worried about trying to keep the RAND at under 15 or, or whatever the number is that is the ideal, right? And that's where we saw a bit of a challenge. And it goes back to the old fight in the ANC, right? Which is coming from NASRAC and even slightly before that, where people have been saying, yes, the Reserve Bank must maintain independence but we need to move away from this harsh inflation targeting. We need to inject some liquidity into the economy so that we can do the kind of projects that create more jobs downstream because what grows the economy is more people with jobs, with quality jobs and those jobs paying taxes. But if you keep losing jobs, increasing your debt and that debt is in US dollars, you know, at some point, because your economy isn't growing, you're going to be in crisis. And so what we saw around the core question around how do you find a, how do you fund a crisis is that the government took the conservative approach and they went with classical neo, neoliberal economic theory, which is inflation targeting, you know, watch the interest rate, watch your currency um, exchange rate and manage that as much as possible and absorb the shock. What they then added, which was dangerous, is borrowing this money from the international organizations, which are now trying to put more terms and conditions on the money, you know, because that's what happens when you get money from the IMF and the World Bank, is that right. even though you have a very unique local environment, which they don't understand, even guys who work at the IMF, let's be honest, an IMF worker is living in Santon, is living wherever is cool in Cape Town. They've never been to the township. They've never been to a mine. They've never spoken to workers and they don't understand the nuances of the political situation in South Africa. And, and they can watch the Democratic Party on TV, but some things about South African politics, you have to go into the branch. You know, you have to go to the branch and understand that, ah, this thing will never work. We can't force this guy to do this because this thing will never fly at any branch of his party. So what can we do that's innovative, right? But the, the thing that they have is they have their formula and their rubric, and they come to you and they say, have you cut the public sector wage bill? Then you say, no, I haven't. Then they say, ah, chief. So, so we're going to have to increase the interest. What have you done about um, privatization? Say, no, I'm working on it, but there's a delay because, oh, so you haven't privatized, okay. 
So we have to raise the interest rate. And that's how they work. There's no, um, you know, what, what can I say? There's no understanding of the nuances of an African economy and an African economy heavily right. influenced by several political dynamics. And mm. now mm. The, the president and the administration find themselves in an economic straitjacket because now you can't actually do the required things to resuscitate the economy because you've signed these contracts where the people come with their checklists and they say, hang on, you can't do that because if you do that, you're increasing, increasing the wage bill and we don't like to see increased wage bills as the IMF. And that really is where the country is now in terms of the economic conversation. So I think, again, um, to, to shift to different ground then, um, in defense of the president and his, his year, some might say that, look, the handling of this, firstly, this pandemic, again, has been you know, a derailing force. But secondly, that if you look at the way President Ramaphosa handled the emergency of COVID-19, he's actually done reasonably well to uh, come out, uh, institute a relatively harsh lockdown early, which may have saved uh, potentially millions of lives, at least thousands. Um, and if you compare us to countries like the UK, even with far more sophisticated health systems, our early intervention has um, shielded us from the worst excesses of the crisis. Um, so what would, you, what would you say to that? Do you think that uh, the president has redeemed his other failures in the way he's handled this emergency? Well, I think I want to say something about the African stats in general. So I'm, I'm opening my COVID-19 tracker because there's something interesting I want to, I want to point out to you that doesn't get discussed enough. Um, let me go to my global, change my country. So for instance, have you noticed that some African countries with high COVID-19 cases have not had much of an impact in terms of death. And it's the thing that has got a lot of scientists in trouble because they've started asking questions without um, respecting the conversation around how do you ask these scientific questions without sounding racist, without seeming like you have an ulterior motive. So Ghana has had 48,000 48, COVID cases. Guess how many people have died from COVID in Ghana? Just pick a number. It's, it's going to be wrong. Whatever you pick, guess. <laughs> well, I think the, the, the global case fatality rate is, is less than 1%. So I'm assuming it's, it's less than 4,000. And okay, I'm going to go with 1,000. Okay, it's 320. 320 deaths only, right? Obviously, any death is regrettable. But when you even think about... The, 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 the countries where COVID has been hitting hard, um, mm. it, hasn't, it, it hasn't been in that kind of a range. So I think Africa has been lucky in terms of COVID-19 and the impact thereof. And that's, yeah. that's where I want to start off by saying, I, I don't want to give too much credit that is biological and environmental. Mm. Mm. I think we could have locked down a little bit earlier um, because I think we, we, we spent a few more days than we should have are still deliberating on that. I think at mm. the point where we close the schools, we should have locked down, but obviously people needed to be prepared, et cetera, et cetera. Having said that, uh, I still think that the president did an excellent job um, in managing the crisis in the context of this country, in the context of this economy, and in the context of all of the events that were happening around the world. So I think that um, what was done is the best that could have been done um, I think that they were a bit slow closing schools I, I, in terms of uh, after they had reopened them and all of that. I think that was a bit of a sketchy period to try to keep the schools open when there was a surge, when it was winter, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. this uh, agenda that we just need to finish the curriculum. That was, was something a that I felt was... Which it felt like they bowed to in that period. You know, the DA was, yeah. was going haywire. Yeah. Exactly. And, and obviously, that's the other thing is that everyone's worried about the political environment because you never know if this is the thing that gives your rival the edge over you and then never you never bounce back. But um, with, with the exception of that school period, I think they did well in managing COVID-19, the sure. disease. 
in terms of some of the regulation we went through, I think they did poorly uh, because some of the restrictions, especially the alcohol restriction in the context of it coming with a social ban. So what I mean by this is, I think you could have allowed some alcohol to be purchased while banning the social events altogether, right? Because if you still have your curfew, if you still have your restrictions on travel, if you still have your restrictions on gatherings, you're not going to have the social events happen to the same extent. The ones where people get stabbed, the ones where the, the fights break out, and the ones where people are recklessly driving, right? Because now, how can you recklessly drive? There's even a curfew. Where are you going, right? Because remember, there were all of those restrictions. So I think mm -hmm. that alcohol and cigarette ban were an overreach and there were own goals. Um, but part of me feels like they were also like a distraction that was chosen. But that's the conspiracy theory me, not the <laughs> an analyst me. Uh, because at some point I was like, this doesn't make sense. Why is this happening? Is this just a distraction so that we have <laughs> a smaller fight to fight? and not necessarily get freaked out about the virus because now you're fighting to jog, to drink and to smoke and mm. maybe not panicking about COVID. I don't know. Maybe it was a political strategy game. But I mean, aside from that, I think those were own goals. I don't think those are popular policies mm. and I don't think they were essentially necessary. But having also said that, it's very difficult to judge any administrator on COVID-19. Some people have done everything by the book and they've seen COVID numbers just surge in their mm. countries. Some mm. people have done nothing by the book and not been hit hard by COVID, you know? Sure. And I'm happy Africa has been really lucky. If we had been hit the way the rest of the world was hit, I think, um, you know, we would have been crippled. So it seems there's some justice somewhere, sometime. Um, and, and this is one of those particular instances where I think we were lucky. Where I think, however, the criticism is fair is around the economic discussion because I think that the economic discussion shows the challenges which exist even, even prior to the crisis because it's like we were already in a recession prior to the crisis. And, and I want to mm -hmm. highlight those challenges so that we all know what they are. Number one, if you were to ask me as a consultant, if, if the government were to hire me, the first thing that I would say is that it says here on the Global Competitiveness Index that South Africa is low on skills. 112 or something on skills, tertiary education type of skills that they're looking for. You know, So if we are 112, that shows me that that's not good. Our banking sector is top 20 in the world. Top 20. That's, that's the quality of the banking sector. But our skills assessment is 112. That's, that's not good. So how do we get our skills to be at the level of our banking sector? It shows me that we need to direct our attention to that strategic area. That's number one. Number two, we all can see the people who survived the pandemic the most were digital businesses. So there is a need to give every business in South Africa a digital footprint. A lot of the businesses which don't have a digital footprint are the ones that are in the townships. And also, people who are living in rural and township communities don't have the adequate access to the internet to be able to create these new internet companies that we say we want to see. So if we want economic activity in the township, in the rural areas, because imagine if there's a farmer who can show us his um, fruits and deliver them directly from his um, Facebook or his website or whatever the case may be, we don't need to necessarily go to the places we've been going because maybe we can negotiate great deals. You know, maybe uh, cooperatives in the city can make a plan with cooperatives in rural areas and actually get those people plugged in. But that requires rural broadband. That requires township broadband because broadband is the cheapest way to bring people the internet, not to go through the mobile providers because they charge a premium for that same internet, but broadband can be provided at a fraction of the cost. So looking at those two factors, we're saying we want for IR and we know we've got a low skills base. By the way, 30% of the people who are employed, formerly employed in the South African economy are considered to be working in the elementary sector. That's, they separate the elementary sector into two, the domestic workers and other elementary workers. People who are working as, um, you know, shelf uh, packers in supermarkets, et cetera. 30% of, of, of the employed, 
are working as elementary workers. That's a red flag. That number needs to go down. You need to have, because elementary work is defined as work that does not require much training in order to be able to do cleaning, shelf packing, those kind of jobs. So if you're, if you're in, and this is from the, mid, uh, the, the quarterly uh, labor survey, you can go read the report and get those numbers. If you look at that, that's another red flag, right? So we've got too many people working as elementary workers. We already know the, the global competitiveness index has told us that our skills base is low. And we already know our people are disconnected. We saw it even with the, with the education system, right? We saw that uh, the private schools continued as if nothing happened, right? They were like, oh, COVID, go online, kids. See you tomorrow, be in class, same time. People were opening their MacBooks and teaching their kids at home and tweeting about it. Some of them, some of them, we saw them and you're like, oh, okay, this is how this person's child is learning with their MacBook, you know, uninterrupted learning, but everyone else, they couldn't continue with school. And their teachers were even more at risk of getting COVID-19 because the classes are crowded, the, the, the teachers are a bit older, the principals are a bit older. So it was a lose-lose. So already as, 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 as someone who's thinking about the right economic direction, it, it has to include uh, expansive broadband into the places where those communities are excluded. It has to include a, 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 an aggressive targeting on education, higher skills education. And it also has to include re-educating a lot of the elementary workers. Now you go to the economic recovery plan. What was there? We're going to build more roads. We're going to do massive infrastructure. But all of those discussions didn't go to the critical areas, which could have made the global community think, wait a minute, you're solving the problems that we can all see. You gotta fix your education. You gotta fix your access to the internet. You gotta fix the, the, the skills base. But if you're not doing any of those things, how really can we be sure that your investment story is the right one? Because investors are looking for the story. They're looking to see is the trajectory going up or the trajectory going down? And they can do their own um, industry analysis. They don't need yours, right? They've got consultants who can come and tell them, hey, here's what the competitiveness index says. Here's what this document says. Here's what that document says. And they're like, well, what, what can Amazon go and do in that country? we can't go and build a high tech um, headquarters for Africa there because South Africa is, is the logical base, but they don't have enough people to do the kind of coding work that we need. But if South Africa said, Hey, in five years, we will have 10,000 people who can code in five languages and who can code at this level. All of a sudden Amazon is like, maybe it's time that we have Amazon in Africa doing all of those deliveries. Then everyone else is like, hey, we don't have data centers for Fortnite uh, in, in, in South Africa. Maybe now we can go and get some guys to put, and these are the jobs that we need. These are the high paying jobs that we need and we need to compete for. But everything that was given in that economic recovery plan did not give signposts or signals to the global community that we're serious about competing in the jobs that are still available and the jobs that are also available for us to take up in terms of some, 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 some jobs can only ever be done domestic. So you need local engineering to build local engineering stuff, local artisans, local electricians, local plumbers. But what in that plan showed that there's going to be an increase? You look at the funding for NASFAS, no increase. You look at the leadership in the Ministry of Basic Education and the Ministry of Higher Education, no real shift in direction. You can't then go to the international community and say, guys, we've got to act together. Where? Where's the act? When I read the document, but this is the same document that you've always had. And you even admit it and say, this document may not be new, but this time we're going to implement it. And then I say, why? Because it doesn't have smart goals. What about it makes it a, a refreshed document and that's where i think if we really critically think we'll find that the problems that existed in the sona and that were obviously uh, you know difficult to track in a full sense in context of there was a pandemic but some of the underlying problems continue to exist because there hasn't been a robust discussion around this very conservative economic um, philosophy, as well as this very 
let's call it this unambitious economic strategy. So when you put those two together, there's no real recipe for growth. There's only a recipe for maintaining what is present. And maintaining what is present keeps all of the problems that continue to exist exactly in the same boxes. So you continue to have uh, the middle class where it is, you continue to have the, the elites where they are, and you continue to have inequality, poverty, and unemployment the way it is. And even post the pandemic, if we don't change that approach, what changes that ratio? So on that, and to, to round up, because I want to, we're not even going to have time. And, and I think that's fine because our discussion has been very focused on the president's promises, which is, which I think is lacking in the media landscape at the moment. Ne early next year, I think we should have a look and preview 2021 because we've got an interesting yeah. election coming up against this background. Definitely. But to, but, but to, to conclude our conversation today, out of 10, how would you rate and score the president's performance this year, given all the constraints, but also given all the failures? Where are we, where are we putting President Ramaphosa for the year of 2020? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna do three, uh, three things. On, on COVID management, uh, I'm gonna give him seven. Seven on COVID management. I think um, that has been a good job. Um, in terms of economic recovery um, and the plan looking ahead, I'm gonna give him five and a half. Um, I, I think more needs to be done. On economic stability, which is a different thing, trying to make sure that things just don't get out of hand, I think that you give them a seven, right? So the status quo has been maintained, but the future, which needs to be fought for and attained, I don't think that the plan or, or the, the president, he has done enough where you can say that will be done. I think you have more of the same and in as much as we are critical, more of the same is not the worst case scenario. You know, sometimes uh, we forget that we are in Africa and it is messier out there than it is here. You know what I mean? And part of that is because some elements of this conservative uh, monetary policy have actually worked at maintaining some stability. Some of the experiments which are really popular in terms of monetary policy if done poorly with poor management, can explode uh, with dire consequences for everyone. So I understand the reason why there's an he a hesitation. But I think that when people who are defensive-minded start playing the offense, they become stronger teams because they already have the defense covered. So if you already were very aware of the risk that exists with moving into a more progressive monetary policy, you are the best person to progress us into that monetary policy because you have, kept, you have spent your nights sleepless, worried about all of the pitfalls. So you are the best pilot for that as opposed to someone who's just reckless. So I think that this administration could have been the administration to do that and almost um, you know, re-navigate the monetary policy of South Africa to somewhere where it has more flexibility to deliver the reforms that are required, but we're not quite there yet. And I think if you tally it all up, it's probably a six uh, in total. Um, so, because the 5.5 the will bring the other ones down. But I'm not mad at the performance of the president. I think he could have done better. Uh, and I think more specificity is required but I'm also very aware that there's a lot of factional stuff happening and um, his capacity to act is somewhat limited. I don't know if we should always accept that as an excuse um, for, for uh, lackluster delivery, but I think that is something that we have to keep in mind. But I'm from the school of thought which says you win with what you have, no excuses, uh, and, and you win at the time that you're expected to. You need to make reasonable progress in reasonable time. So I always look at everybody, including myself, and I say, listen, whatever your problems are, you as the leader have to deal with those problems to deliver on the promises that you gave to the people. 
The customer doesn't care what is happening behind the kitchen. They don't care that your onions fell down. If they ordered a particular meal, what they want to see in reasonable time on their table is the plate. And I think we need to hold politicians to that standard as well and not to join in making excuses for them. We, as the people on the receiving side of the delivery, need to just ask, hey, where's the stuff that we asked for? Where's the stuff? And we don't want excuses. We don't want anything. We've already paid through the tax system. Where is the stuff? You know, we have to be more transactional in our measurement of politicians instead of getting involved in their organizational dynamics, getting involved in their personal squabbles and personalities. And I think that point could apply to any political system. I'm so frustrated with how little discussion was present in terms of many of the elections that have happened this year, including America, because everyone was looking at Trump, Biden. Who is Trump? Who's Biden? But what does that do for student loans? You know, what does that do for the price of rent in, 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 um, in LA? What does that do for uh, community policing? These are the questions I think people need to be asking more of and not less of, because if we stay focused on the politicians, we will have the problems that we have. Oh, I've got another criteria, then I can leave it. On public accountability, six, because the president has been uh, speaking to the people through the letters, through these uh, family meetings, but he hasn't been taking questions in many instances. And it's been very weird to watch other prime ministers and presidents um, address their local media around COVID-19 and then watch uh, a president who just comes and speaks and goes, no questions, no nothing. And I think that's part of what you were discussing earlier in that the media has kind of given him this, um, this, this fast lane uh, where he just, he, he's not challenged. He presents everything he wants to present, no questions asked. And I think that may set a dangerous precedent because the next guy will then ask, well, why are you asking me? Why should I answer questions when you didn't ask the other guy to answer questions? And that's how you always have to measure norms and practices. To say, I may like this guy, but will I like this practice if I no longer like the guy on the other side of the position of power? Because he may win two terms, but the country doesn't last for two terms. It outlives him. But those norms and practices may extend into terms of office where you may wish you were not as comfortable with it as you are now because it's your guy. Well, bro, thanks so much for sharing your, uh, your views with us and uh, your insights with the audience. We look forward to having you back again as we preview 2021, which is around the corner. And uh, yep, keep, keep doing good things. Make sure you like, share, subscribe, share this video with friends, tweet uh, Mighty Jamie, his handle will be in this video. And uh, also check out our preview of Sona if you want the context to this conversation that we did at the beginning of this year. Are you, are you? Wait, wait, are you Sean or Caesar still? Have you chosen? <laughs> well, as you can see by the Afro, I'm still Caesar. <laughs>